Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. We started this uh, 2023 structured study of the truth of happiness, um, beginning with a look at jhana meditation and then the four foundations of mindfulness as the basis for establishing concentration and ever deepening levels of jhana. And then also that that four foundations of mindfulness then provides the foundation for the concentration necessary for refined mindfulness or integrating the Eightfold Path as our path to understanding. Last week's class, Jen gave an outstanding talk on the Four Noble Truths, which is the whole point of the Eightfold Path to develop understanding of these Four Noble Truths. So to end the cessation of our own contributions to the stress in our lives. So now we're going to begin a three-week look at the Eightfold Path itself, beginning with um, right view and right intention. So I just want to, um, all of you did your homework and you've written down your answers and any, I mean, a little uh, couple paragraphs about what you're learning and any questions you have. Yes, everyone? I don't hear a lot of people saying yes. And you're all, you're all using the guided meditations from the website. I hope so. Um, and you're you're reading along with this because I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I assume that you've read the introduction and you've read uh, everything that I'm going to read tonight. But this will just be um, just to touch on some important aspects of this week's study, and I'll offer additional commentary. But again, if you're following along with us, please do the reading and please do the um, the meditations as instructed because that's what we're doing as a sangha. Right view, the first factor or component of the Eightfold Path is right view. Right view is initially the perspective that your views of life have been lacking understanding or lacking wisdom. Note the uh, resulting uh, disappointment in life. Things aren't working the way they are. We, don't, we can't understand how we fit into life. Uh, why is there so much stress? Why does it seem like people don't love me? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's wrong with the world? All these things that we think um, are significant but causing distraction are all rooted in ignorance. If there's a distraction, if there's stress, it's because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. That's our Dhamma practice. So initially, right view is a perspective that that's true. This lack of wisdom has given rise to unhappiness and stress. Stress is a distracted mind state born of ignorance. And a mind that is distracted by stress rooted in ignorance is always grasping after stressful things, not peaceful things, not things that will resolve in calm. Preoccupation with stress is the distraction that keeps one in ignorance. The Buddha could have almost as accurately described the first noble truth as there is stress as saying there is preoccupation because it is the preoccupation with stress that manifests as greed and aversion all rooted in deluded thinking, thinking lacking the wisdom of understanding four noble truths. If you're not following anything I'm saying, please uh, just holler out and I'll go further. Understanding that it is our own ignorance of the truth of existence or the truth of four noble truths that has caused a distracted mind state of stress is acknowledging the first noble truth, the truth of stress. So the first noble truth is simply acknowledging, yes, as a consequence of, in my, of my life, there is stress. We don't need to go any further. In fact, at, if we do go further than that, you're losing track of the Dhamma because what should follow that an acknowledgement that, yes, I'm contributing to the stress of my life is the second noble truth immediately because that describes why. Again, we'll get into all that. Without this initial perspective, it will be impossible to develop the understanding leading to the cessation of stress. We have to know where we are if we're going to get to where we want to be. Um, I once had a teacher that would say that if you want to get to Los Angeles and you're in Chicago, but you believe you're in New York City, you can't get there no matter what. We have to know where we are. We have to place ourselves right where we are and be accepting of that. That's rooted in jhana meditation and concentration. It's also rooted in what you learn in these classes and what you learn from us teachers, to be gentle with yourself, to only practice what this is because this is what leads to understanding. 
Don't get distracted by other things or other therapies or other ideas or other rites and rituals. If you're a Dhamma practitioner, this is Dhamma practice. I'm going to read this again. Without this initial perspective, it will be impossible to develop understanding leading to the cessation of stress. Understanding that it is your own lack of wisdom that has caused disillusionment, disillusionment and suffering is difficult at first. None of us want to admit that we're ignorant. But remember, we're not talking about that we're ignorant of our entire life or how to live in the world. We're simply accepting that, yes, I'm ignorant of these four noble truths. And that's the cause of stress. And that points one in the right direction or leads to the next factor, which is right intention that we may get to tonight. <laughs> I hope so. Remember that until this initial step is taken, that your mind will reject developing understanding because there will always be something else. So we have to put ourselves in our place. We have to understand why we're doing this. And we have to understand why you're following that, that pain in the ass bald guy in Frenchtown because it's to your own benefit. You don't do this because you're trying to keep me happy or the other teachers happy, or even to think that you're doing something right, unless you're doing it as we teach it. Your mind will remain wandering around in ignorance, looking for any distraction to avoid seeing the truth. In modern Buddhism, that's often called wandering through samsara. If any of you that have practiced modern Buddhism has heard that term, excuse me wandering through through samsara but it's usually taught that that's the um that's the lot of a human being that we're always be wandering into samsara and every lineage i was with had their own slight variation but the the end result was we'll be wandering in samsara for endless eons is usually how it's put but then it's always said but go ahead and practice anyway and i thought that was crazy i want to understand and this is what bothered me through my Early years in, in many of the modern Buddhist lineages, including the one that I took a vow in and disavowed pretty quickly afterwards, is I want to know what it means to have this human life. Why am I so confused? Why am I full of stress? Why do I take things so damn personally? And nobody could teach me that because nobody was teaching Four Noble Truths or an Eightfold Path. They all said you'll be wandering in samsara for endless eons. Well, okay, everybody else, all my friends are practicing this way. So let me go ahead and do it. And I would do it and do it and do it. Still getting more and more frustrated, more and more confused. And still wondering why all these wonderful people that I'm surrounding with don't know anything that can help me, including my teachers, including my friends. And it wasn't until I came to cross what the Buddha taught and took the time to actually learn it, that, that something in Buddhism made a difference in me. And that became a profound difference. I'm going to read that again once more. Your mind will remain wandering around in ignorance, looking for any distraction to avoid seeing the truth. So it might be other spiritual practices, other Buddhist practices, or a good bottle of scotch, anything that will do the job. Without the perspective of right view, developing the path of liberation, I'm going to say this again, that would be like planning a trip to Los Angeles when you are departing from New York, but believe that you're insisting, but believing and insisting that you're in Chicago. You simply won't get there. It is impossible to arrive at your destination, a calm and peaceful mind, lasting happiness and peace, without first accepting your present quality of mind. Does everybody understand that? This is one of the most remarkable things about the Buddhist practice, and I've never seen it in anything I've ever studied, understood, school, anything. The Buddhist Dhamma meets us right where we are, and it does that for every human being. Whether you're the most deluded, murderous monster like Angela Miller, or you're nearly a saint like me. Ha ha ha. The, the Buddha's Dhamma meets you where you are, and any human being, no matter who and what they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've accomplished, no matter whom they've hurt, no matter whom they've helped, can develop the Dhamma as long as you know how to find out where you are. So how do we, how do we initially find out where we are so that we can be, begin practicing the Dhamma? How do we put ourselves in our place? Is anybody, I'm not going to call on anybody. I'm going to see if anybody has an answer. How do we put ourselves in our place where we are right now? How is that done through the Dhamma? Present time. Not, not you, Jerome. Not you. Anybody else? <laughs> Take a breath. Anybody but Jerome. Pardon Present me? time. Present time. There's a moment. Take, uh, take a breath. You're close. Brian, did you say something? Take a breath. How do you like my English? Something? <laughs> You're very, very close. You're getting closer. Present time, wasn't it? 
What's that? Present time. Present moment. Yeah, present moment. David. Everybody heard? You must pra David said you must practice yawn and meditation. As soon as I take my breath, no matter what's going on in my life, I sit down, I find a secluded place, I close my eyes, and I take a breath. I've now united my mind and my body. Now Dhamma practice can begin. But without it, there's no Dhamma practice. And that's, that is the point. We're, we're leading up to this, but we began, right, with jhana meditation. And now we're getting into the Eightfold Path. This is why we practice jhana. So our concentration is deep enough to hold in mind these principles. And it doesn't take years and years of jhana practice. It takes a few sessions. Brian, you had your hand up, and I missed it. That was Brian. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. The, the sign, the, the, the uh, picture bounces around a little bit. Drake, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I was, in terms of what would put us in our place, I was thinking maybe uh, just recognizing that we create our own suffering. It's like, it's actual reaction that comes from within. And so that, you know, by embracing the first noble truth of recognizing dukkha, then we see that, you know, you can see the, the, the fundamental ignorance, the ego, and then you see the attachment, this like strong desire that things be other than they are. And it's yeah. that emotional reaction that is like, you know, so somehow like learning how to let go of that emotional reaction uh, ah, so the sum, the somehow is the Dhamma. Yeah. You know, that, that's what gives us the skill to, to be able to do that somehow. This is how we do it. And of course, it's almost bewildering at first. How, at first, how can I control my mind? How can I understand this? But as soon as we take a breath, unite our mind and our body, we're on the way to developing it. And it, I don't mean to be too simplistic about it, but then we recognize it, just as you're describing, Drake, that yes, there's stress arising. Why is stress arising? Because I've literally outside of my body now. If there's stress here, my mind is not united in my body. And so that stressor, whatever it is, the reaction is telling me, yes, in this moment, I've lost my mind. Take a breath. And now my mind is united back in my body. David? And, and Drake's right. Maybe not as uh, fleshed out, but that, that first moment of right view. Yep, the beginning, the, the recognition. Beginning to say something's not right here. Yeah. And we are all fortunate, at least I was, not to have gone from practice to practice, but fell into this and, you know, job meditation. Yeah. Yeah, so again, Drake, that you were you were right there. That's where that's where it arises. That's where you can start losing the Dhamma and losing ourselves, or we can recognize, wait a minute, this is what practice is for. And again, taking a breath, uniting our mind and our body. Thank you all. Achieving liberation and freedom from stress cannot be realized without first accepting the truth of stress. Ultimately, right view is a is a perspective of a mind resting in the Dhamma free of the distraction of stress, another description would be calm, and awakened mind. Right view develops gradually, initially in understanding that life in the phenomenal world is stressful, and the cause of stress is clinging, begins craving for and clinging to, begins the development of wisdom. Through integrating all eight factors of the Eightfold Path, that's our practice, isn't it? Right view develops understanding that penetrates to the root of suffering, which is ignorance. Developing right view is developing wisdom. The Buddha describes right view in the Buddha's words. And what is right view? Knowledge with regards to stress. Knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. Knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress. And knowledge with regards to the path or practice that develops the cessation of stress. The Buddha finishes that by saying, this is called right view. Is there anybody here tonight that doesn't understand that? Okay. Um, the knowledge that we're talking about is not intellectual knowledge. It begins with intellectual knowledge. It begins with study. But then knowledge is that we're talking about is experiential knowledge. So the knowledge that we gain by practicing the Eightfold Path is what continually builds towards a profound or awakened right view. 
my words. Right view is knowing and understanding, understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Right view is turning away from ignorance and distraction. Right view is considered the forerunner of the path, the Buddha's words. And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. This is one's right view. And what is wrong view? There is nothing giving, given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. There is no fruit or result of good or bad actions. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father, no spontaneously reborn beings. These are all the things that were common themes during the Buddhist times as well, spontaneous reborn beings or gods and divas. No Brahmins or contemplatives who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. Now, I'll explain that, Mike continued commentary. The Buddha here is describing the ignorance and the consequences of wrong view. There is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed, means that clinging, craving, desire, and aversion is maintained, not given up. So the beginning of practice is recognizing what's not working for us and giving it up, not analyzing it, not bringing it to our therapist, not holding on to it because it makes us feel good and leads to distraction. It's simply recognizing that, yeah, I have to give something up if I'm going to gain the benefit of this Dhamma. What do I give up? What am I giving up? Wrong views. It's always a wrong view that will cause a distraction in this moment. And it is that distraction that one should look at and say, wait a minute, this is I making. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am and letting it go, no matter what it is. And remember that being excited over something achieved is just as big an, a, a distraction as being angry with someone or frustrated or confused, unless we're resting in calm and peaceful mind, unless we're resting in understanding. There, again, my commentary, there is no fruit or result of good or bad actions means that there is no understanding of the consequences of poor actions or skillful actions leading to awakening. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father, no spontaneously reborn beings, no Brahmins or contemplatives who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world in the next world, having directly known and realized it for themselves, refers to lacking understanding of becoming or rebirth. We get caught up in this drama of either human life or the drama of my um, acquired spiritual so-called spiritual or buddhist practice and we just get running around in this circle or realizing that okay i'm going to wander through samsara endlessly well that's what the buddha is referring to because those were common things during his his lifetime as well what the buddha practiced and rejected during his 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 time was rooted in the vedas and the upanishads primarily which led to the beginning of modern hinduism and modern buddhism it has more akin to modern Huda Hinduism than it does with what the Buddha taught. Does everybody follow me? If you want, Buddhism is a good primer on being a Hindu, is what, and I don't mean that in its snarky way, but that's what it's more akin to. It's more akin to Hinduism than what the Buddha taught. And again, um, there's nothing wrong. If that's our choice of practice, then by all means, practice it wholeheartedly, but understand what you're practicing. Drake. Oh, thanks. I, I'm not really following. Are you saying that the Buddha is describing wrong view and then saying wrong view is there's no father, no mother? Um, oh, the there, there, so. well, the mother, father, meaning the, the mother, father come birth, come together and give birth. So the mother, father is metaphor of giving birth to further ignorance. And it can. And in some of the literature, many of the literature, that's um, that recurs lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. So just, to, and it refers also to the first noble truth of birth is suffering. So it's simply referring to that. A, the, the mother and father of this life does not necessarily lead to understanding. It just means that we have this physical life. Birth is suffering. And so we have to understand that there's nothing good in that and there's nothing necessarily bad, but we should start to acknowledge that, yes, I'm having a human life, period. Doesn't matter where we came from, doesn't matter where we're going, 
what's occurring right here, right now? Is my mind resting in calm or am I grasping after? Am I still rooted in greed and aversion, rooted in deluded thinking? So does that, do you understand? Are you slugging your hand up, please? Oh, sorry. That's all right. I meant to close my hand. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I kind of, uh, I, I, I think, I, uh, I think I can understand the fundamental ignorance in a simpler way of just believing in a separate self, and that the um, right view is more about understanding the four noble truths and the eightfold path. So, as long as I yeah. got that part. Yeah, some of this Drake is 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 meant in a more broader application to people that might still be grasping after ideals and ideologies and magical and mystical thinking. That's really what he's talking about here. Um, instead of just practicing this Dhamma right here and right now. So the common practice during the Buddhist time was either getting into the magical and mystical something that might happen. Magical and mystical practices, even something as simple as bowing now has um, some kind of mystical power to it. Or following gods, divas, or Brahmins that aren't practicing the Dhamma. It's all what the Buddha is referring to here. So even, okay. even those people that we might uh, deify in their own human life, which the Buddha never did. You know, we're taught, there was one practice that I went to on a regular basis, and I was taught that the, that the abbot of that particular place was a reincarnation of the Buddha um, when he was teaching, but only when he was teaching. There was a whole ritual that went around that. You know, I always questioned that and, and you know, it was confusing. And when I came across the Buddha's Dhamma, I realized why it's confusing and why I was questioning it, because it's not it's not based in the Dhamma. And so, again, some of this might apply to you and some of it is just a broader application to to the um, confusion that many people can fall into. Thank you for that question. Initially, uh, wrong view was simply. I'm sorry. I will have my hand up as well. Right. Um, Please, Tom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just quick. Um, expand a little bit more on there is no fruit or result of good or bad actions because, um, you know, my understanding of karma, um, you know, is that you are certain actions give birth to further ignorance, right? So there is... There is a result of a bad action. So can you just explain what... what the, the fruit is? means that there's nothing nothing skillful gain from it. So if there's, there, there's no fruit gain unless you're actually practicing the Eightfold Path and developing an understanding of these stressors in your life. You know, so then what, it doesn't matter what... It's something that is... Um, it's something that I might see as good. I just went to a 14-day Sashin. That was really good. Now my mind is, you know, I'm ready to go. I've got this sashin. I'm on the verge of awakening. And the next moment, somebody cuts me off on the way from retreat, and I'm screaming and holler at him. And I didn't learn from either one that neither one was beneficial. So, again, we, we fall into, outside of Dhamma, the distinction of usually spiritual skillfulness or, or spiritual good deeds or spiritual development leading to something in the future. There's no fruit there as far as a Dhamma practitioner. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's talking about good or bad actions outside of the outside of the Eightfold Path, essentially. Yeah. I, most of modern Buddhism, the, the, the foremost modern Buddhist practice is being today is being a good person. That's right. called engaged Buddhism. And most people, I, I know probably thousands of, of Buddhists, that that is their practice, and they feel like they're good to go throughout this whole life. As long as they they remain altruistic, that's their practice. And I talk to a lot of them, and they don't meditate, they don't do anything else, but they're good to go. And I'm, that's great. I'm glad they're doing that. But it's not Dhamma practice. And it's that type of idea that thinks that good works. You know, there's a the phrase in the Christian religion, again, not putting it down just to mention it, faith without works is dead. Well, the Buddhist saying faith with no understanding is dead. There's no fruit in it. So unless we're practicing the Dhamma, we can be doing all kinds of good stuff or bad stuff or any kind of stuff. We're not going to get to where we hope to be as Dhamma practitioners. That's all. You know, people can do whatever they want. 
Initially, wrong view is simply recognized. As right view is developed, actions originating in wrong view are simply abandoned. And this is, this is why I mean to be gentle with yourself, but practice the Dhamma as intended, because it is a gentle practice. We don't judge ourselves harshly when we see some type, uh, an aspect of our actions that we might have been doing our whole life is unskillful. We don't judge ourselves for that. We simply abandon that, that behavior. It is a wrong view that continues to develop karma, and it is wrong view that due to karma causes rebirth. So karma is not what most people think it is. Karma is the present moment unfolding of past intentional actions moderated by present level of mindfulness, meaning what I hold in mind will determine my karma. What I hold in mind will determine my experience of this moment. And if what I'm holding in mind is framed by the eightfold path, when a condition response arises and causes a disturbance in my mind, I'll recognize it. And I'll remember my intention that I hope we get to tonight is to recognize and abandon just this, just what Drake mentioned, just what Tom mentioned. In this moment, stress is arising. What do I do? Take a breath, beat myself up, slam myself against the hand, the wall, call a priest. None of those things. We simply take a breath and recognize this is not me. The stressor in this situation is not out there. The stressor is in here and in, in here. And if I can recognize that, remember where we started here, rooted in jhana meditation, now developing an understanding of these four noble truths, I accept right view. That yes, the way that I've been holding myself in the world, the way I've been thinking about myself, my ideologies, that if I just do this, I'll prove that I'm a good person to some amorphous Buddha or some amorphous system, and I'll be good to go that way. That's not it. That's not it. We can be as wonderful and altruistic as we as we any human being ever was. And that's a great way to live your life, but it does not bring awakening. And in that way, and in this view, it's a wasted life. Because the most important thing we can do, the most the thing of most value is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Sometimes I say it like take to the Dhamma like your hair's on fire. Because this is the most important thing we can do. And if we don't prioritize it that way, we'll never get to the end. Those that do prioritize it, what we'll be talking about next week, right effort, those that do prioritize it, awaken. And I've never seen that not happen. I've never seen, not seen someone who takes to the Dhamma as exampled here in our classes that doesn't develop the Dhamma rather quickly and finds great benefit with it. Adam, I would bet you would say that no, I'm trying to put words in your mouth. Would you yeah, say the benefit has been a benefit to you? Absolutely. Yeah, and you've only just begun. So, thank you. So, Chuck, real quick. David. Would you say then the same good works conducted by a practitioner with right view are just skillful works then? Yeah, thanks for the question, as opposed to being having a cumulative effect on your... Or the opposite, without a practice, without right view, those, those good works are uh, rooted in eye making. Yeah, so thank, again, thanks for the question. So a, a Dhamma practitioner who does good works, you know, whatever that might be out in the world, won't notice it. Or they'll notice that they're doing it, but they won't. They won't create an identity over it. It'll be a, a natural pro, a natural expression of being an awakened human being, which is naturally compassionate, naturally empathetic, naturally acting out of wisdom, but without creating eye making. Oh, I just held that door for that poor woman, but a great guy. I, or I didn't. Uh, I let that guy in in traffic. I'm a wonderful person. Or I didn't argue with so and so. I'm a wonderful person. All of that is eye making. So if we're noticing a lot of our good works, then they're not really good works. It may be a good thing that you're doing in the world, but they don't add anything to your Dhamma practice. So as Dhamma practitioners, we, we do a lot of good works for people, don't we? But we also don't create identities of being such wonderful people because we're just good good and decent human beings. Was that where you were going with that? Yeah, because you can, you can get tied up even within our practice of you start noticing better speech, better actions, but it's not rooted 
in right view, you're just on the path without quite understanding what the practice is. That's right. right? That's right. But it, 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 what you're looking at are, are um, continued direction arrows. You're exactly. going in the right direction exactly. by recognizing it. Yeah. As we develop Dharma practice, and I would bet, Adam, you can answer this if you, if you want, that our, be, our behavior, our interactions with other people, including those closest with us, um, simply improves. But would anybody not say that? And that's a direct result of skillful Dhamma practice. Our lives should be getting better as exampled in our interactions with people. They should become more calm, more peaceful, less antagonistic. But that's because we're changing and we're holding in mind the Dhamma and we're acting accordingly. So again, this isn't about being a good person so I get a reward. It's about being a good person because that's what a human being is, period. And the test is simply that if something is done within the Dharma, it does not give rise to further stress. Yeah, everybody heard that? If something is done within the Dharma, it does not give rise to, rise to further stress, Rob said. Including good acts, including, you know, um, putting yourself on a pedestal in your own mind just because you, you acted uh, calmly and peacefully with another human being, or maybe just in the world. I mean, I, um, if we're ever looking at ourselves as being such a fine human being, you're not practicing the Dhamma. If you're looking at yourself as at the end of the day, you can say, yeah, I practice the Dhamma. I, I engage in right speech, right action, right livelihood with a little smile on your face. That's okay. And, and sleep well. But we're not practicing the Dhamma to be the best Buddhist in the world. We're not practicing the Dhamma so that anybody else notices, even those in our Sangha, except we will. We're practicing the Dhamma to awaken, to gain full human maturity, period. And what is a mature, how does a mature person act in the world? They don't care if other people notice, even if we become president. We'll keep our mouths shut about that. Or anything else. I, I'm making a reference that some people might take, it might not, it doesn't matter. I'd describe it as not being susceptible to the contagion of other people's tension. It's a good way of putting it, Jeff. You know, we're, we're, they, they, we don't get entangled in the world, but we're living in the world in a much more meaningful way for us. For us, that's what's important. And then we can skillfully live in the world and contribute to whatever is good in the world. Why? Because we will not be eliminating more stress. We will have ended or at least diminished our own greed and aversion, which brings and spreads peace and calm throughout wherever we travel. Let me continue. Wrong view is caused by ignorance. Right view is an expression of wisdom. The Buddha explains how right effort and right mindfulness directly contribute to developing wisdom. The Buddhist words, one tries, one tries to abandon wrong view and to enter into right view. We make the effort. This is one's right effort. One is mindful to abandon wrong view and to enter and remain in right view. This is one's right mindfulness. Remember, we already described what that is. Thus, these three qualities, right view, right effort, right mindfulness, run in circle around right view. Right view supports and informs all of the components of the Eightfold Path. Having come in contact with the Four Noble Truths, right view brings wisdom to a mind previously stuck in ignorance and confusion. The consequences of wrong view, wrong views, the Buddha's words. In a person of wrong view, wrong resolve or wrong intention comes into being. In a person of wrong intention or wrong resolve, wrong speech. In a person of wrong speech, wrong action follows. In a person of wrong action, wrong livelihood follows. In a person of wrong livelihood, wrong effort. In a person of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness. In a person of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. So the Buddha is pointing out here that there is such a thing as right Dharma practice and wrong Dharma practice, including Wrong mindfulness. Modern mindfulness is the modern religion of, of most of the world today. And we've bought into, if I can just be mindful of this and mindful of that, now I'm good to go. Well, my, I practiced mindfulness for a lot of years, and it almost killed me twice. 
I've buried many friends, hundreds, that practice mindfulness to their death. What were they holding in mind? The next drink or a drug. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is holding in mind. So we can hold in mind anything. It's our choice. My choice today is hold in mind the Eightfold Path rather than the next bottle, the next drug, the next relationships, the next TV show, the next, the next, the next. The next will never be here and will never be satisfying. But what is satisfying is my mind united in my body in this moment. And now I am a reference point to what's occurring. And then everything has the same quality, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Fulfillment and liberation. In a person of wrong knowledge, wrong release. We let go of the wrong things. That's all it means. And it's simple. This is how, what, how from wrongness comes failure, not success. Holding wrong views can never lead to right view. All views born of ignorance are wrong views and are to be recognized and abandoned. Now we're getting into right intention and we're going to go, go for it. Right intention. Right intention is having the intention to abandon all wrong views, abandon all that would continue ignorance and stress. Read it again. Right intention is having the intention to abandon all views and abandon all that would continue ignorance and stress. So in the beginning, you can rest assured that most of your views are wrong views. That shouldn't be um, that shouldn't seem overwhelming. It just means starting from that point and being gentle with yourself. Right intention is the intention to abandon all clinging and all craving. Right intention is also included as a second factor, the eightfold path, as it leads directly to the development of the virtuous factors of right speech, right action, right action and right livelihood. Excuse me. Let me read that again because I kind of messed it up. Right intention is also included as a second factor of the eightfold path, as it leads directly to the development of the virtuous factors of right speech right action and right livelihood. So we begin our Dhamma practice and we agree within ourselves to practice this and begin to integrate the Eightfold Path. Most people that I've ever taught recognize right speech as an obvious entry point to the Dhamma, meaning it's easy for them, for all of us to recognize right speech and what's coming out of our mouth. And when we find that that's antagonistic or grasping after, we take a breath and don't. Or we, we say something that is rooted in right speech. But it begins by acknowledging that my speech up until this point has been wrong in relation to the Dhamma. My actions up until this point have been wrong in relation to the Dhamma. The way I'm framing my livelihood, not necessarily the way that I'm engaging in my livelihood, is wrong as relates to the, to the Eightfold Path. Along with the, the intention to abandon clinging and craving, right intention is also the intention to abandon ill will and all harmful thoughts and deeds. So it's very simple to practice right intention. Is it, is it um, agitating in this moment? Am I grasping after? Am I trying to prove that another person is not, uh, am I trying to cancel another person? That's a common modern practice, isn't it? Am I engaged in ill will? Do I hate someone? Am I trying to get other people to go along with me in hating someone? Do I engage in gossip? Do I talk about people when they're not here? Is my talk rooted in idle chatter? Am I talking about stuff that has no real meaning or usefulness in this moment? And if not, I learned to keep quiet. One of the great developments for me, believe it or not, was learning to keep my mouth shut. Nobody laughed at that. <laughs> you got over that real quick. It, was, it wasn't easy. And most of us will recognize that, that our, and as, our, as our outer speech, you know, as, as our idle chatter starts to quiet, that's a direct reflection of the inner dialogue that is quieting down. The inner chatter. And again, that's rooted in concentration and framing my thoughts now by right speech. Right view initially brings an understanding of wrong views due to strong mental fabrications or conditioned thinking that have developed from wrong view. Awareness alone is not enough to gain liberation and freedom from stress. 
So just recognizing that I, I need to change and now, okay, I'll be just mindful of everything. I'll be mindful of walking and mindful of washing the dishes and mindful of this and mindful of that. That's not Dharma practice. It might be bring up some benefit. And the only reason I'm emphasizing this is many modern Buddhists think that mindfulness is their whole practice when there's nothing there. Right intention, holding the firm intention to, to, to develop the experience of the cessation of suffering strengthens right view. Right intention can be seen as an expression of right view. The entire transformative nature of the Dhamma arises from right intention, the intention to recognize in this moment, craving for it and clinging to that which is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths or the results of that. Read that sentence again. The entire transformative nature of the Dhamma arises from right intention. And you could say that right intention also serves as our guidance and our direction for our Dhamma practice. Being mindful of right intention brings clarity to the destructiveness of reactive thoughts, words, and deeds caused by ignorance. Without right intention, the virtuous and concentration factors of the, eight, of the Eightfold Path cannot be developed. There is too much invested in wrong views to put all wrong views aside without the strong resolve of right intention. And that really should be our practice every day. What is my intention? Today, my intention is to recognize craving for and clinging to all views rooted in ignorance of four noble truth. How do I know when they manifest? Because I'll know the stress. I've developed enough concentration to realize my mind is reacting in this moment, either with greed or aversion, either with pleasure or pain. Holding the intention to abandon all wrong views naturally brings the mind to the virtuous and concentration factors of the path, which is what we'll review in the next few weeks. So if I'm holding in mind this intention to abandon all causes of my contributions to stress, when I am, when I find myself contributing to stress, I'll simply remember, wait a minute, my intention is to not do this. And the Dhamma is that simple. To catch ourselves when we're falling into wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, stop it immediately because my mind is concentrated enough to do so, and not go there. And if I happen to go there, to stop it at some point. And the wise Dharma practitioner can stop it at any point that we've gotten off the path. Because the path is only one step backwards and we're on it. Always. As long as we're keeping the framework of the Eightfold Path, we'll always know where to go. I'm just going to read a little bit more. Holding the intention to abandon all clinging and craving and to abandon all ill will and harmful thoughts, words, and deeds, begins to diminish the effects that occur as the result of strong attachment to self, eye-making, right? And this is, this is how we gently undo this, the process that we've put ourselves through. Right view is also called right thinking and right perspective. It is wrong thinking that binds and permanent views to, tempor to a temporary ego personality. It is wrong thinking that develops craving from a temporary ego personality and then ongoing through the rest of our lives, always feeding the ego, but the ego is never satisfied. Clinging and craving arise from a misunderstanding of what a self is and how a self has arisen. And we learn that through Dhamma. Misunderstanding the nature of self developed an ego personality that suffers in ignorance from birth, sickness, aging, death, and rebirth. It is this personality that the Buddha identifies as anatta, not self. I'm going to stop there. That's enough. And you've all read the chapter. Let me just put a bookmark there. Um, so as we're getting into this, um, the wisdom factors of the Eightfold Path, understand them as such, that developing right view is developing wisdom. Understanding and engaging right intention is developing wisdom. It's how we do it. And so in this moment, if we find ourselves agitated or distracted, for any reason at all, recognize that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. The reaction is something rooted in anatta, rooted in not-self. A, a calm and peaceful mind is an awakened mind. So when a calm and peaceful mind is not present, it's because you've attached yourself to something that is stressful. Take a breath, recognize it, and if you can't, just let it go and get into the next moment of your life but now free of this moment needing, needing this moment to be any different than it is, being simply a reference point to what's occurring. What do you think, Brian? I'm, I'm going to give Jane a break, not go to her. Um, 
I think that right view in and of itself is largely an intellectual pursuit and it's with right intention that that right view becomes directly experiential and there's a a feedback loop between the two of them that the the more resolve that you develop to abandon wrong view and remain in right view there's a there's a momentum there yes that carries you into the rest of the the path uh and without the intention to recognize and abandon right view, or wrong view and remain in right view it, it just remains an intellectual pursuit and there'll never be any cessation of stress and there's yep. there's something there too about those two things being the wisdom factors and wisdom isn't knowledge wisdom is knowledge with action right or wisdom is yep. knowledge with experience yes yep. and those, yep. those two aren't the same thing so it's it's really interesting how these are just paired together like that so thank you for the teaching Thank you for that. You could all write that down on your refrigerator. That was that was excellent. Thank <laughs> you, Brian. If I may say so, uh, please, Rob. If you if you read the first paragraph of this chapter, that's what it's about. Thank you, Rob. Jeff, how are you tonight? Good guys. Good John. Good to see everybody again. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like Brian. I, I see the intention is sort of the, what generates power or agency to change. Yeah. It, 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 uh, it's true without, without a view, without a consciously right view, you're automatically in wrong view. You can't possibly have any other view but wrong until you're able to make that distinction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's all I've got on that. But uh, intention seems to be on a much bigger level too than conscious intention. There's, y y your whole life seems to be an intention of some sort. It's yeah. either, you live a life of intention, whether you're aware of it or not, I guess is what it is. Yeah. And the difference is that from a person who's mindless, it's just their condition thinking that is now driving your intention moment by moment by moment. So you know, the, the, we often wonder, you know, how did I, uh, how did I do this? You know, how did I do something that so-called negative? Well, it's because your condition thinking drove you to in a direction that that you didn't even realize what your intention was. And I'll go back to the, it's an extreme example of for years and years and years, I tried to drink myself sober. I somehow thought that after the next bottle, I was going to somehow be sober. And I believed it. Most drug addicts think that you can drug yourself to a place of normalcy or something. But again, that's just this conditioned thinking that drives an intention that is completely ridiculous, yet we do it. But Look at the compulsions that are out there. I'm not just talking about, you know, everybody's addicted to something and we're all using that to distract ourselves. So thank you, Jeff. What do you think, Adam? Um, I, I pretty much liked it. Um, what really struck me tonight was um that holding in mind stuff. Because that that's that's like how I was living. And you know my background story. So it's like yeah. I was holding in mind that type of lifestyle and um Another thing you said was like keeping your mouth shut, which Jeff taught me. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I, I'm known not to keep my mouth shut. You know, I'm not no sugarcoater. I'm a, I'm basically a straight shooter, and I have no filter. And um, Jeff was like, "Man, sometimes it's sometimes some things aren't meant to be said." You know? Yeah, that's yeah. right. A lot yeah. of times, right. and you're right to to, to see that the the holding in mind the way you used to be only compels you to stay that way, right? Right. And now you're changing your mind and you're becoming the person that you want to be. And that's more reflective of your, your reality. Right, and, right. you know, you're, you're integrating the Dhamma in that way. Um, it, it, again, you're, just, you're doing great in doing that. Um, there's something else you said that um, I can't remember triggered something. It was in and out of this cheese hole like brain of mine. I got <laughs> Swiss cheese brain. 
Thank you, Adam. Right, Deborah, are you with us tonight? Would you, would you like to comment? No, it's not. Drake, good evening. Oh, hi. Uh, Hello, well, uh, I guess I was really, you know, I, this whole week I've been trying to understand fundamental ignorance and see how, you know, it's like I know I'm creating suffering for myself all the time. My personality is like so conditioned. Um, my reactivity is like so unwholesome and uh but i have a lot of faith that i can figure it out it's like you know you just watch yourself do it over and over and sooner or later you're going to understand how that happens and you're going to be able to intervene and and you know what you said about as soon as you notice it just give rise to the intention to stop and come back to your breath integrate your mind and body and and i was also inspired by uh letting go of all views it's like just stop thinking for a moment and get connected to the present moment, you know, direct perception, sense contacts, feeling, you know, being aware of that quality of awareness. that's yeah. prior to thought. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really encouraged that it's possible to make progress. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. I, I, not to, not to um, uh, argue with you about one single, single word, but, I want to talk to you about faith. So you said that you have faith that you'll be able to do this. Faith in who or what? Uh, myself, just to be able to observe and, and understand. Yeah, I yeah. just wanted to get that out. And yeah, it, that that's important. We have faith in our, if we're going to have faith in anybody, it's not in something external. It's in that we can do this because a human being taught us and we're human beings. There's no reason why we can't as long as we continue with Dhamma practice. And I'm pretty sure you will, Drake. <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight, my friend. Well, Hello, Jane. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, Jane. There you are. Hi, John. Here I am. Um, thank you for the teaching. Um, there's The quality of my life has changed dramatically since I began my practice for, for the good. And um, the world hasn't changed. So... What has changed is is my view of stress and my contribution to stress. So, so that's working. So, can I ask you that the the aspects of Jane that you recognize and abandon as unskillful have you missed them? Not at all. <laughs> it's nice when you ask a question, you know the answer. <laughs> that's it. right. Thanks, you Jane. don't have to hesitate. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Now, teacher Rob. <laughs> Thank you for another excellent teaching. Thank you. Um, I don't really have much to add to this. <clears throat> the, the connection, as, as Brian said, the connection between right view and right intention is, is very important. <clears throat> and the task here is to, is to truly understand what those intentions should be. Yes. It really is. It's an interesting thing. I think as we develop and are mindful of right intention, I know I was surprised at, I'm thinking back maybe 20 years ago, I can't believe it. I was surprised at these almost hidden intentions that I had, almost a, a, uh, uh, an agenda for each moment. And as I was looking at it, that, that itself became rather conditioned and complicated and all kind of tied into different things here and there. Mm -hmm until you take a breath and realize, yeah, there's a lot that's conditioning me. There's a lot that's pushing me in one direction. And in the beginning, it was a direction I didn't want to go. But our lives all have a momentum about them. And the Dhamma gives us a way to, and I, I've never seen this anywhere else in any other discipline, it gives us a way to interrupt that momentum. Sometimes we call it, or I say it often, that we interrupt ignorance. But we're interrupting the momentum to continue ignorance, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And that's what concentration is for. And it's really only for that, but it's solely um, and incredibly 100% useful in doing that and, and just recognizing and stopping the momentum of my own ignorance and bringing my mind into this moment, which is, again, we, it's just another way of saying we begin Dhamma practice and we're always beginning Dhamma practice where we are. David. David. I guess he's struck 
research studies are a little bit difficult because it's hard to talk about right view, right intention without jumping right over the right effort yeah. and the purpose of the first two classes of this structured study was John meditation mindfulness because yeah. the very things that Drake's talking about is impossible without that refined mindfulness that he's developing so again this is an eightfold path it has to be integrated it has to be understood as this one path and just the nature of a study you're kind of chopping it up yeah. but uh, it really is just one thing and without them all being integrated you'll see that it's not quite working it just means you just have to take a breath and see where you're just not quite integrated at all so yeah thank you good study it's just i mean it's just a choppiness of a study but really you put it together very well with the first two classes yeah thank you for saying that and and again it's important to understand it all the all the classes we have, all the suttas, I, I restored over 300, and I think that's enough. I might do a few more. Um, they all point to just this, this eightfold path, and and ongoing daily moment by moment practice. And that might even sound like drudgery to some people, but it's actually liberation. It's the way to liberate ourselves. But the more we integrate the Dhamma, the more we practice the Dhamma. Getting next week, we'll, the next class, we'll talk about right effort. But the more we engage in right effort the more we get out of our own Dhamma practice. But if you look at it as something, again, that's going to fix something in you, um, you're likely not going to continue your practice unless you start seeing those benefits readily. Because it just seems like most people don't want to, I've noticed, even especially meditators, they they just want to meditate once in a while and think that that's good. And, and I know people that are very serious meditators that never learned anything beyond a million different meditation techniques. And they, they the almost to a person that I've met or talked to, they haven't gotten anywhere past wondering when the hell meditation is going to bring some benefit because it's not designed for that. Meditation alone does not bring much benefit, but John and meditation within the framework, what am I doing? John and meditation within the framework brings awakening, it brings liberation from ignorance. So. My what? 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 Oh. <laughs> Speak English. What's a camera? There I am. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments about tonight's class or about our study or about doing our study? All right. So continue um, reading, you know, doing your homework. Um, I noticed people aren't doing much writing. If, if you're so inclined, please do the homework at the end. Um, writing does uh, employ different parts of the brain. And it's a really good way to integrate the Dhamma is just writing things out. Um, so please do that. And please continue to um, listen to the guided meditations twice a day for however long is appropriate for your practice. And we'll finish with Metta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath Unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not boarding it into this world. Thank you all for a great class tonight. Peace, everyone. Thanks, Thank John. John. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, Jane. Bye. See you, Brian. See you, Adam. See you, Jeff. See you, Drake. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.